Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I currently have a brilliantly terrible song by Cobra Starship as my earworm. So kiss me goodbye and more on that later. Is Cobra Starship another incarnation of Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship? Starship. Not unless they've found a time machine and gone back and sort of made themselves younger. They're very young. Too young to be sort of Jefferson Airplane related. Are they the people at the end of the film? Ah, yes. Oh my, more on that later. Yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've become a vegetarian by accident. Is that good? Is that bad? Do you mind? Are you happy? Tell me your feelings. Well, I noticed the other day that I had no meat in my house at all. And I, and I thought, oh, that's weird. When was the last time we did have meat in my house? And I worked out that apart from a can of tuna, which led to some 3am fun and not in a good way. Oh, I'm trying to work out why that would be in a good way. I don't know. But all I can say is it wasn't fun at all. The last time I had uh, meat in the house was I had bacon right at the start of this. Right, so six weeks ago I had bacon. It's cause, partly because I haven't got an oven and partly because I'm trying not to go shopping that much and partly because... Just there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of meat. Just stopped eating it, basically. Well, and I didn't even notice. Hannah Dunleavy meat watch. Yeah, more on more news next week. (laughs) I said it was a fact. I didn't say it was fun or indeed interesting. (laughs) It is interesting. Well, I'm Jen Offord, and I am well. Thank you. Good. That's a relief. That is a big relief. Later on, I chat to journalist, author and beauty guru Sally Hughes, who is also the co-founder of the charity Beauty Banks, which is like a food bank, but for essential toiletries and its sibling initiative, hashtag Helping Hands. Ahead of Shakespeare Day, Hazel Davis chats to University of Oxford's Professor Emma Smith, author of This is Shakespeare, about the enduring appeal of the bard and if there's anything at all to be salvaged from the taming of the shrew. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to winner of last year's W Series, Jamie Chadwick, about life in the fast and indeed now slow lane. In Dunleavy Does Disaster, we watch a Cobra meeting people actually bothered to go to, (laughs) Snakes on a Plane. Woo-wee, what up with that? But first, lost PPE, absent plans and missing spades. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we ask the important questions, which, for the avoidance of any doubt, aren't, when will the lockdown end? So here we are, currently April the 20th, and I don't think you can find a better representation of where here is than the fact that the BBC's health editor, Hugh Pym, now appears to be acting as a go-between for companies desperate to help with the PPE shortage, but still awaiting to hear back from anyone in government as to what help they can be. And if that's not surreal enough, two Labour MPs, Diane Abbott and Jess Phillips, both asked Pim on Twitter to help companies they'd been unable to assist in their bid to make shit that saves people's lives. Oh, it's so hard to talk when you've got your head in your hands. Which brings me to the Sunday Times article about the government's response to this, which is too densely packed with what the sweet fucking fuck to cover in full. So let's instead concentrate on the one fact that doesn't so much leap out as fly towards you and full-on roundhouse kick you in the face. Boris Johnson did not attend any Cobra meetings on coronavirus until March the 2nd. If you've lost track of the day since then, and who hasn't, here's a bit of perspective about where we were on March the 2nd. 
It was a few days before the UK registered its first death from COVID-19 and parts of Italy were already in lockdown. On a personal note, March the 2nd was the only day I've ever phoned in sick to a podcast recording. I'd been unwell and was anxious not to spread it round, given there was a killer virus on the loose. It's also the day my brother started cutting his staff's hours and a full 10 days after we began our attempts to reduce our mother's social interactions. Since the most common response to criticism of Johnson's handling of this disaster is, well, I suppose you could do better, I'm going to say in this instance, I think I might have. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. So where was the Prime Minister in all of this before March the 2nd? It seems glib to say he was having a nice holiday, congratulating himself on Brexit and sorting out his increasingly complex personal life, but according to the Times article, he was doing exactly that. I mean, he might as well have been sitting in a bath of custard wanking. Yeah. In fact, given that that might have reduced his chances of catching coronavirus, I'd almost rather he had. (laughs) What's the truism I'm searching for here? Uh, You get what you pay for? Maybe not that, especially since at the moment it's also not true. Where's my spade, home base? Where's my spade? (laughs) I'm also reluctant to say you get the leaders you deserve, because I think we deserve better than total apathy about our impending deaths. So maybe all there is to say is the country gets the leaders they vote for, and if you did vote for Johnson... I hope the scant regard with which he holds your life has shaken you to your core. And you might want to hold on to that feeling, not just so you consider your vote more carefully next time, but also so when all this is over, Johnson faces the professional repercussions he so richly deserves. Hear, hear. It's not like we weren't warned, is it? Do you know what I mean? That he's a dick fuck who's only interested in himself. I mean, can you imagine if this had happened at a time... Well, if it happened now, but, you know social media hadn't been invented or it wasn't possible for us to see what Macron was doing or Varadkar was doing or other countries were doing or South Korea and therefore we were able to take action ourselves before the government told us to because we knew this stuff. Yeah that's true a lot of people did start social distancing measures before we were told to by the government. Yeah we did didn't we? I'd never washed my hands before Boris told me that. (laughs) Okay, okay, for any avoidance of doubt, I'm not asking when will the lockdown end, I wouldn't dare, but rather how will the lockdown end, which is a very different and altogether more pressing question. Because given everything Hannah's just eloquently talked about, it would be generous to say the entrance strategy into the UK's version of lockdown was beset by muddled thinking and indecision. So therefore, it would be massively reassuring to know whether the government, you know, has an exit strategy. And yet, its silence regarding this question sows doubts as to whether there's a clear plan. To be honest, I'm not even taking bets. And while I've heard and read the opinion that there's no point outlining anything while we absolutely definitely still have to be in lockdown, which, to reiterate, we absolutely definitely still do, and I do appreciate the fear that if you start talking about it, some people might start prematurely doing it because some people are fucking wankspangles. But I do think there's a comfort to be found in a plan rather than the very real concern we face more ambiguity, misinformation and leaked news from various sources resulting in fuck all clue about what's going on. Take this weekend, for instance, when schools were mooted to be reopening on May the 11th. No, over the summer holidays. No, wait, September. Education Secretary Gavin Williamson took the unprecedented, yep, there's that word again, step of being honest and saying he couldn't actually give a date for when schools would reopen, which shouldn't be a big deal, but felt like a breath of fresh air from this fetid, secretive leadership. The two phases to dealing with a pandemic are pretty simple. Suppression of the virus and managed revival of the economy and as much of normal life as possible. 
the government has, to put it mildly, royally fucked the first, I'd really like some reassurance that it's even thinking about the second. You know, Jenny Harris said yesterday in the press conference that they'd done a really good job in the containment phase. How? When we have got the projected worst death toll in Europe? I don't know. How when, out of the global death toll, the UK, we're tiny in the grand scheme of things, has got 10%. Yeah. It's impossible to quantify or rank the sadness of, at the time of recording, more than 16,000 coronavirus deaths recorded in UK hospitals alone. Each one of those numbers is a person with a story, family and friends, and a life ended before its time. The death of 28-year-old pregnant nurse Mary Ajiwa Ajipong, which was announced last week, was no exception. According to her place of work, Ajipong's final shift at Luton and Dunstable University Hospital was on March the 12th. She tested positive for COVID-19 on April the 5th and was admitted to hospital on April the 7th, where, almost full term in her pregnancy, she underwent an emergency caesarean shortly thereafter. Though her daughter, named Mary after her mother, is said to be doing well, Ajipong died on April the 12th. At the time of recording, there had been 43 confirmed deaths of NHS staff, though the real number is thought to be higher. And with adequate PPE still not in place, let's face it, it's going to continue to rise. How many care workers, you wonder, have met the same fate? Well, that's almost impossible to know, given that until last week, the government appeared to have forgotten about care homes altogether. Still... I think we can all agree that those people who are putting their lives on the line to care for the most vulnerable in our society will be beyond grateful for that badge. <laughs> Health Secretary Matt Hancock said he'd like to give them last week. Fucking hell. I mean, can I just say, I love a badge. I've got a jacket that is covered in badges, but this badge can fuck off. Badges are things you give volunteers who've done a nice thing to remind them that they did a nice thing. They're not things you give to people who are doing a fucking dangerous job for fuck all remuneration like yeah i'm not gonna go on about it yeah my sister works at a care home and uh yeah i mean she's she'd rather a face mask yeah or a pay rise <laughs> so i mean about all of this i, I don't have any jokes to make because it's not funny but as deputy chief medical officer jenny harris who i mentioned before said on sunday she had a fucking cracker on sunday she said that a more adult conversation about ppe was needed and i find it slightly ironic so to put that in context i saw a fun in inverted commas news item on saturday about an eight-year-old girl nala rose from london who is making visors for nhs staff funded by her own pocket money and with the help of her grandmother who is a design and technology teacher and the nhs say that this equipment i'll remind you made by an eight-year-old meets their required standards so there you go there's your adult conversation as we await a delayed shipment of ppe from turkey which senior nhs figures said on monday they had relatively low confidence would arrive is it coming from a home base <laughs> <laughs> what if they just get your spade they get your spade and you get all am, the ppe am i fucking shelves home base <laughs> <laughs> all right guys all right guys Sorry. you seem to have sort of hijacked the podcast yeah no that's, <laughs> you know that's, what I mean? uh, that's not the adult problem. conversation that the government have not been having how have they been talking about this until now what like just by playing hangman you have to guess no we need to have an adult conversation about it i think it's it's us the yeah. onus is the on onus us is like getting hysterical yeah. oh which is why it's so much more offensive <laughs> yeah a slice of good news pie anyone yes please mm -hmm. 
A few weeks back, I chatted to the incredible force that is Kate Isaacs, whose mission via her hashtag not your porn campaign is to hold porn companies to account and put consent before profit, which I think we can all agree is a good thing to do. Fair. If you've not had a listen, then please do. It's a cracking chat, even if I say so myself. Kate is relentless in all of the best ways and it has paid off. UK government action on the negligence of porn companies and their compliance in child image abuse is imminent, thanks to Kate's contribution to the forthcoming online harms bill. We'll keep you posted. It's also excellent news and down to the hard work of the Internet Watch Foundation, who Hannah had a chat to a couple of months back and is also well worth a listen. Jen, please continue to cheer us. Right, you are. So we all thought sport was over, right? Yeah. Uh. Wrong. Wrong. Sod Liverpool and what's going to happen to the Premier League. Amongst the doom and gloom of the coronavirus pandemic, darts continues to thrive. In one. The socially distant sport can be played in different rooms and play they have done. An online tournament called Modus Icons of Darts <laughs> streams for nine hours a day, in case you've been looking for something to fill your time. I have. Well, Hannah, there you go. And uh, history maker Fallon Sherrick has signed up to compete in it. And two. Meanwhile, the sports governing body launched the PDC Home Tour last week. It beats watching the news and all the horrible things going on around the world, reigning PDC world champion Peter Snakebite Wright told the BBC. Yeah, quite. Probably. We are super snake heavy in this, this week's episode. It's almost themed. He's an interesting looking chap. Well, I'm guessing maybe the snake bite comes from the fact that he drinks snake bites. I don't know, but he does have a tattoo on his head. <laughs> Is that of lager, cider and blackcurrant? No. It's not. Okay. Anyone in London who's taken up gardening to fill the weekends might be interested in Plant Savers, which has partnered with garden centres across the capital and parts of the southeast to provide a delivery service, meaning that A, some of the millions of plants currently rotting on the shelves can be saved, B, businesses can recoup some of their enormous losses. And C, we can all have things to plant. You can find out more at plantsavers.co.uk. That is excellent. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to look at that. Except I can't fucking use it. But what have you got? For people in Cambridge and the surrounding areas, and I can't believe I've not plugged this sooner, but get yourself over to the Cambridge Fruit Company, one of the genuine good news stories of this whole sorry saga. You can get fresh fruit and vegetables delivered to your front door in a timely fashion, as well as arranging for deliveries to be made to local families in need or the staff at Addenbrooke's Hospital. You'll find them at cambridgefruitcompany.com. Also excellent. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we believe women. Well, I mean, we did believe women, but to be honest now, we're not even really listening. Or at least that certainly seems to be the case when it comes to Tara Reid's allegations of sexual assault against former Veep and presumptive Democratic POTUS hopeful Joe Biden. Reid, who was a staffer for Biden when he was a Delaware senator, alleges he inappropriately touched her and penetrated her with his fingers without consent in 1993. It's a serious accusation. And as with most cases like this, it's incredibly hard to prove and boils down to she said, he said. So let's hear what Joe Biden has to say, eh? For a woman to come forward in the glaring lights of focus nationally, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she's talking about is real. Thanks, Joe. That absolutely made sense when you said it during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and it absolutely makes sense now. 
But I have to hold my hands up here. The thought of Donald Trump being in the White House for four more years makes my blood run cold. And while I realise a choice between two handsy old white men isn't much of a choice at all, surely anyone is better than Trump, right? And so I worried that maybe talking about Reid's allegations played into Republicans' hands. What if it destroys Biden's campaign? And then I came to my senses. (laughs) Other women have spoken about Biden's inappropriate behaviour. Man, he's even sort of affectionately known as Creepy Uncle Joe. And he appears to be doing all right. Brett Kavanaugh's a Supreme Court justice. Trump is the leader of the free world. As a brilliant Jessica Valenti puts it, the Me Too mantra, believe women, doesn't mean that women never lie. It means that our systems of power are biased towards believing men never lie. Which, I mean... (laughs) Let's just say that right now I'm gesturing wildly at everything. Yeah. I mean, the, this Democratic primary has been... It could be studied in, like, the perfect textbook example of how to not so much miss the goal as, you know, manage to bounce it off the crossbar and score at the other end or something. You know, stab yourself in the neck with a javelin while you're running with it. It's just, just fucked. How they fucked it up so badly that what you're left with is someone who can be criticised for the main reasons that you would criticise Trump. Number one, he doesn't appear to be all there all of the time. Exactly the same thing could be said of Joe Biden. He's an out-of-touch, rich white man, old man. Exactly the same could be said of Joe Biden. And also, he's possibly a sexual predator. And exactly the same thing could be said of Biden. How, How are we here? Hello, Hannah here. Now, as you know, this is usually the point in the podcast where I interrupt to say something about you being able to give us some money via the magic of Patreon. But I know everyone's having to tighten their belts financially and also that there are probably some very worthy charities that you are supporting with your time and money. And so how can you continue to help us? Well, you can listen to us. If you're furloughed, and you're at home, or if you're taking your regular hour walk, why not have a route around through our back catalogue to see if there's anything you haven't listened to? Because listens equals money for us. Equally, you could spend this time spreading the news about Standard Issue. I know a lot of you already do this, but if you see anyone on Twitter asking for suggestions of what they could listen to in this time, just get in there and say Standard Issue. Thank you all for your help and support at this time. And that includes everyone who already supports us on Patreon. Hello, I am joined on the phone by journalist, author and beauty goddess, Sally Hughes. Sally, hello. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So uh, I've put makeup on to talk to you, even though you can't see me. Well, I haven't got any on. You've probably put me to shame. I look like a right old dog. I'm sure you don't. No makeup on. Yeah. I mean, I'm still in my pajamas. I didn't go too far. Respect. I think I've been wearing makeup nearly every day, and I suppose that means I did always do it for me and not for anyone else. It helps, doesn't it? I think I'm making sure that I do it a couple of times a week because it just helps to make me feel a bit more normal. It gives the day a bit more structure. I think you've got your makeup on, and it feels like you're properly then at work. You don't let breakfast meander into lunch, meander into dinner. I just find it gives kind of quite useful demarcation and structure to the day to feel like I'm up I'm showered makeup on and dressed 
Yeah, definitely. And there's an element of war paint as well, isn't it? Being ready to face the day. Yeah, there is. And also, I think when people feel all at sea, which of course lots of people do at the moment, something constant and something routine and normal makes us feel it's a bit of a grab rail for us. And I think that's completely understandable. And, you know, whacking on some lipstick sometimes just makes you like you can put your best foot forward. And at times like this, that's important. Definitely. So along with all of that multi-hyphenating in the intro, you're also the co-founder of the charity Beauty Banks, which is like a food bank, but for essential toiletries. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it came about, please? It came about because a couple of years ago, I was in Cardiff making a documentary on homelessness for BBC Wales. I was filming in a homeless shelter and I noticed there was a cardboard box under the main front desk and it was full of kind of odd toiletries like single tampons, big disposable razors, little hotel bars of soap and whatnot, just in one little cardboard box. And I asked the members of staff where they came from and they said, oh, well, we bring them in. If we go anywhere, we kind of nick the toiletries out of <laughs> Premier Inns or whatever and chuck them in the box because if a homeless client has a job interview, he's going to need to shave. Or if a female client has her period, she's going to need protection. Or if they have a housing meeting and they want to look smart and, and so on, they need essential toiletries. And I suppose I'd never really thought about it. We've all put, you know, tins and food items in food bank bins in supermarkets. But actually, at that point, nobody really talked about, or very few people talked about, toiletries products. And actually, if you think about all the things that you need every day, soap, shower gel, toothpaste, toothbrushes, razors, that kind of thing, that's the same for people who are living in poverty. Of course, yeah. And so I messaged my friend Jo Jones, who's a big deal beauty PR in the industry. And she and I had been talking for some time about wanting to do something charitable. We were going a bit mad post-Brexit, post-Trump and so on. I texted her a picture of the um, of the cardboard box and she said, well, we can get loads of product. We know everybody with product. We know all the companies. Why don't we put the need and the supply together? And that's what we did. So we came up with Beauty Banks. I launched it the next day, I think, or two days later with a column. And it just went completely bananas. Within about 48 hours, we had an American film crew following us. We were on every news site in every newspaper. It was just nuts. So since then, it's been really about creating the charity we want to create, doing it in the way that we want to do it, and helping as many people as possible. So we have provided over 180 registered charities around the UK with essential toiletry supplies. And then during the COVID crisis, we've had to broaden it to still supply charities dealing with people and helping people who are living in poverty, homelessness. Things like women's refuges, family centres, food banks, homeless shelters and so on. But we, we are now also broadening our remit to help NHS key workers, mainly workers working in ICU, A&E, COVID teams and the ambulance service. As you mentioned, coronavirus means that a lot of charities are having to think differently about how they do things. And you've mm. come up with a sort of sibling to beauty banks, which is called Helping Hands. What, what is that? So Helping Hands is our campaign within what we already do. We launched a GoFundMe around about a month ago now to launch the Helping Hands campaign. Lots of quite unique problems with this crisis and the implications it has. Okay, first and foremost, as, as has been well documented, NHS workers don't have time to go shopping. When they do get to the shops, they often can't get the things they need. Mm -hmm. And also they are having really big problems skin on their hands from washing them constantly in um, surgical soap and their faces 
wearing PPE. So that's one thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening that people don't really take into account is that when people are terrified for their own families, worried about the insecurity of their own finances, they give less to charity. And they also give less to charities dealing in poverty because understandably during the COVID crisis, everybody wants to give to NHS charities, which is admirable and correct and lovely. But there are still people in dire need who are now getting less than they were before that kind of puts into a crisis of their own. So food banks, for example. The other issue is that even when people are prepared to give money to charity, the supplies aren't there. So when they go to the supermarket, there aren't spare beans or there aren't spare loaves of bread or there isn't spare butter to put in the food bank bin that they normally use. And so with the best will in the world, supplies can't be spared. People are getting what they think they need for their own family and there's nothing left for people who really desperately need it. That's a unique set of circumstances that we need to try and help. And so we launched Helping Hands to try and get people to really refocus on people in dire need. And they have responded in their droves. It's been really phenomenal. Our fundraising campaign has seen members of the public now donate over £100,000. Wow, that's amazing. And every single penny of that goes towards our work. We don't draw a salary or anything. And then on the industry side of things, it has seen uh, many, many beauty brands really up their contribution in terms of product. So we are getting pallets and pallets of free skincare, um, hand care, body care, shampoo, conditioner and so on from brands that we are then distributing to food banks and to NHS charities. Roughly, we've split it so that the free product donations are mainly going to the NHS and the money donations are mainly being spent on poverty charities because we don't have access to pallets and pallets of, say, toothpaste, for example. Mm -hmm. So we need to buy that with money. Roughly, it has been split like that, so that charities dealing with clients in poverty are mainly getting money spent on them and bulk product donations from beauty companies, posh beauty companies like Estee Lauder, Charlotte Tilbury, LMS, those sorts of companies, Moulton Brown, we are sending to NHS charities. It just works better for various kind of legal and auditing reasons. That's roughly how it breaks down, but there are some exceptions because there are lots of NHS workers telling us they don't have sanitary protection, for example, because there's none left in the supermarket. That's mad. Uh, And the last thing a nurse should be worrying about when she's saving lives is has she got a tampon, for goodness sake. So, you know, there are certain exceptions like that where we will buy supplies and send them to hospitals but that's roughly how it breaks down. It sounds like you're doing incredible work and you touched on it there so period poverty has had a little bit more attention recently and obviously (laughs) from January 2021 no more VAT on that luxury item that is products to help us menstruate but Hygiene poverty is also huge and doesn't Mm -hmm. get quite as much attention. So Beauty Banks isn't just about collecting the donations and ensuring they get to the right people. It's also about lobbying the government. So I wondered what changes you would like to see. That's a really good question. I'd like to see, I mean, there are lots of things we'd we'd like to see that kind of, some of them come under poverty, lots of them don't. We are uh, working with various MPs at the moment on some campaigning and lobbying work going forward about ensuring that hairdressers have to learn about Afro-textured hair as part of their training before they can qualify, for example. Mm -hmm. We are looking for greater regulation in the injectables industry. We are 
wanting more job security um, and better working contracts for people who work in nail bars. We are thinking about the fact that some trafficked women work in nail bars and so on. There are so many issues that affect every industry. And as we're in the beauty industry, we see it as our job to also look at those. There are, as you say, some brilliant people already working in the period poverty space, charities like uh, Red Box and Bloody Good Period and Hey Girls, just really, really brilliant charities. And we speak to them a lot. We're on really good terms with them. And they often send us things. We send them things and so on. They're great. And so they've really, really helped build that prominence. But there's also an element with all charities where when children are involved, people are better able to um, sympathise because they often or usually have children of their own. But, you know, some parts of charitable work are, are not sexy, sentimental, alluring, affecting. They're just really, really necessary. And so wherever we can, we try to highlight those as well. I mean, sometimes we send products to prisons, for example, and, you know, people don't really like the sound of that. They think, oh, don't really want my money to go to prisons. We find that people respond much better to things involving children. That's just the way of the world, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't help them. Absolutely. And those people probably need to have a little read about why a lot of women are in prison and probably don't need to be there. Well, funnily enough, I met I met a prison warden uh, um, and social worker at an event and she said to me she loved all the female prisoners and she said to me 99 times out of 100 or more every woman in prison traces back to a bad and abusive man and I you know that's that the stories are so tragic that and you know the care system there are so many aspects to homelessness and to being in prison that are so so down to bad luck and poor resources and and things that are completely out of the person's control and so we feel that that's as much of our job as the more kind of media friendly causes. Yeah I couldn't agree more. So how can people get involved in all this amazing work that you're doing? So our GoFundMe if you just google Sally Hughes Beauty Banks GoFundMe our fund will come up straight away it's also pinned to the top of my twitter profile which is s-a-l-i-h-u-g-h-e-s you can donate there you can also add gift aid and as i say neither joe nor i take any payment or salary for running beauty bank so you can be sure that all the money is going to people in need if you are a brand and you happen to be listening please do get in touch with me on twitter or social media and up to email and we can sort out your donation from there At the moment, lots of people are offering to volunteer for us. At the moment, because of the COVID crisis and lockdown, we can't accept any help from volunteers who aren't already working with us just because your safety is paramount to us and the safety of our recipient charities and the volunteers who work in them. We're doing lots of contactless drops and so on. And so we can't take any volunteers at the moment, but um, we do shout out every now and then for volunteers. And I'm sure when this is over, we'll be able to do just that. And you can follow us on Instagram and we are at the beauty banks on instagram and all our info goes out on there on a daily basis i can't let you go just without asking how you're doing in lockdown are you okay do you know i really 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 miss my freedoms the working from home thing is fine i've always done that i haven't had a proper staff office job for donkey's years now not since 2004 and so that's all fine but oh i just I missed my freedoms. I really want to see my friends. I haven't seen any of my friends. I'd like to sit in a beer garden with the first shandy of the summer 
and all my friends and have a good old laugh. And that's just become pornography to me now. <laughs> I think about it constantly. My friend put a tweet out the other day and he said, which of your valued possessions would you swap for a pint in a beer garden right now? I mean, I can't really think of anything I wouldn't, to be honest. <laughs> To have all my friends in a beer garden now, legally and safely drinking, chatting and laughing, I would I would give you pretty much any material possession I have, I think. I can't wait for it to be over, but the main thing is we are safe and well in my house, and so are our loved ones so far. So all we can do is just keep doing what we're told and hope that it passes. Well, I raise a virtual glass to you and everything you're doing for now and wish you that beer garden very, very soon. And to you. I'd like to welcome Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Oxford University and author of Penguin book This is Shakespeare, which is out now. Hi, Emma. Why do we care so much about Shakespeare? Why, why is there such an appetite for lots of writing and discussion around Shakespeare still? That's such a great question. Partly I think it's because most people have done it at school or have had to have some exposure to it. So Shakespeare has a role in our culture, unlike any other writer. It's a bit of a mixed blessing actually because often that puts people off or makes people think this is something you would only do if somebody made you do it and then the other thing about Shakespeare is there's just been this 400 year history of continuing to reinterpret the plays so lots of Shakespeare's contemporary writers are really pretty much stuck back there in the Elizabethan period you can't imagine putting those plays on, say, in the modern corporate world or set in, you know, some science fiction future or all these kind of weird things people have done with Shakespeare so because of that I think Shakespeare kind of keeps on the radar and certainly arguments about what Shakespeare should be you know whether black actors can play characters who aren't black or women actors can play male characters those kinds of things which are really about sort of identity politics and who we are and um, representation and all that stuff that tends to get played out on Shakespeare kind of weirdly I think why Shakespeare has such longevity yeah there's a there's a, there's a few reasons and so, some are in, intrinsic to, some are about him and some are actually about us so one of the things that's about him is he doesn't really write very topical or fashionable or kind of contemporary feeling plays at the time so there are other writers writing much more about their own world or about the politics of their own world and Shakespeare really is quite a kind of fairy tale make-believe more myth sort of mythic in a way kind of playwright so he's not writing about the here and now of his own time and that means that the plays have been a bit more free free form to float float off and there's certainly the point that the plays of this period they were imagined as pieces for the theatre primarily and only secondarily and only in a in a relatively few cases were they printed there wasn't such a um, a clear idea that reading drama was was going to be a thing I mean kind of why would it be you might love I don't know quiz or something um, but you wouldn't think oh I love it so much I'm going to run and get the script I mean that would just be weird and there's a kind of weirdness about that uh, in the theatre but Shakespeare's plays do get published they get uh, gathered together in this big book called the first folio and just doing that suggests these are important these are going to last these are things that you might put 
in your library and keep and look at again, rather than that these are the kind of ephemeral product of a theatre which next week is going to move on to a new play. You mentioned that they were written kind of to be performed rather than read. And I think you've mentioned in your book that there's not very many stage directions. So we really don't know half the time whether someone's being sarcastic, whether they're angry, whether they're sad. And I think that is that why we stress so much about what Shakespeare meant. And we constantly worry about what he possibly could have meant by this because there are no stage directions. I think there's loads of gaps about th- those kinds of questions, particularly those adjectives that you used, you know, is, is, is somebody angry, is somebody sad, is somebody sarcastic? Even where we get stage directions, they never include that kind of material. So you just don't know how a speech might have been delivered when the foot plays first came out. One of the things I try and do in the book is to say, I think for too long, those kinds of absences in the play have been a source of anxiety to us. And we've been sort of desperately trying to work yeah. out, well, what, what do they mean? And what, what, what is the right answer? And what did Shakespeare intend? And in the book, I kind of try and say, well, actually, gaps are the point. We can bear the space for us to put ourselves into they're the space that every age has kind of invented uh, their own Shakespeare in, and we should we should go with them. Would he have liked that? Is that the sort of thing he would have appreciated, or is that a really GCSE level thing to say? <laughs> no, not at all. It's a really tantalising thing to say, isn't it? Because there's a big scholarly debate about whether Shakespeare was interested in getting his plays published at all. What sense did he have of an after of, of his own afterlife? And certainly in the sonnets, he does talk a lot about how poetry is the thing that will last. Mm. Everything else will go, love, beauty, all those things, they, they all disappear, but poetry will last. And that does suggest he has a sense of uh, his own reputation and his own literary immortality. So I guess in those ways, it would be really pleasing to him. I think what he wouldn't like, or, or what he would think of as, as ironic almost, would, would be generations of school children beavering away unwillingly over these plays for GCSE or uh, you know kiss stage three or whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, well obviously uh, being a professor of Shakespeare you like Shakespeare and you you enjoy his work do you think that we shouldn't focus so much on his work in schools? are we in danger of spoiling our love for him or, or do you think it's that important that we should be still looking at it obligatorily I feel really conflicted about this I think for all kinds of reasons, some of which we've talked about, knowing about Shakespeare is a real piece of cultural capital. It's a sort of sign of a certain level of education and it opens a door really to all kinds of things, not just artistic things. I feel very queasy about that, but nevertheless, I think it's true. And so I think if you don't know about Shakespeare, you are actually cutting yourself off from something quite big in in our culture. I think there are brilliant teachers who teach Shakespeare really well. I was not taught well Shakespeare well at school and thought it was just terribly boring and, and took forever to say anything. And then my teacher would explain, we were doing Twelfth Night, would explain why things were funny. And we just thought, oh God, you know, kill me now. And I, I still sometimes have that feeling. I think that sometimes we talk a lot about going to Shakespeare in the theatre. I think I have been more bored in my, you know, than any time in my life, sometimes at Shakespeare plays in the theatre. I mean, just think, why is this going on so long? So I don't absolutely, you know, I don't sort of love it in all its forms. I think it can be brilliant and I think it can be thought-provoking and surprisingly modern and moving as well as kind of dull and infuriating uh, sometimes and misogynistic and all those kinds of things. I wonder if it's possible in schools to sort of not be too reverent towards Shakespeare and I think the best teaching kind of does that. 
Yeah, sure. Talking of misogyny, um, you, you tackle quite a few of the different plays in your book. And Taming of the Shrew is one that's just difficult for everybody, isn't it? I mean, I love Shakespeare and it's still one that I think, oh, God. Yeah, yeah and, it's really difficult, isn't it? Can we just talk a little bit about the play yeah. for those who don't know it and talk yeah. about your kind of interpretation of it? Because I love your interpretation that perhaps she's being sarcastic at the end. So the play, The Taming of the Shrew, the shrew of the title is a woman called Catherine. A young woman does, says she doesn't want to get married. She's kind of, uh, it's really hard to summarise because you could say she's kind of strong-willed and knows her own mind, or you could say she's sociopathic and out of line and yeah, can't express emotions, you know. <laughs> she's wild. She's wild, and she could be wild in, in good ways that are fulfilling for her, or she could be wild in sort of slightly out-of-control ways. <laughs> anyway, she is wooed by, I mean, it's a funny kind of old-fashioned word, and it's not really like that at all. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a man, let's put it a different way, a man called Petruchio, who doesn't know her at all, but knows that uh, she is rich, or her father is rich, says that he's going to marry her. He doesn't really care what she's like. Uh, he really wants the money. And Petruchio and Catherine begin this relationship, which it's really important to recognise is not sought by her she doesn't want it nevertheless they have this kind of prickly fiery kind of relationship it's not surprising to me that um elizabeth taylor and richard burton played these two lovers <laughs> in a really kind of wonderful uh, period piece film if you can get a clip of that on youtube it's really worth looking at and that was a sort of fiery relationship you know a relationship which was not comfortable which is extraordinarily passionate and they brought that interpretation to, to these lovers but there were lots of other interpretations too anyway Petruchio treats Catherine in these very cruel ways to tame her. He denies her food. Uh, he denies her sleep. In fact, he's using the model of how you train a, a, a hawk. Yeah. That's how you break it, you know, break its spirit or break, bend it to your will. Mm -hmm. And at the very end of the play, Petruchio is talking with his male friends and he says, you know, Catherine will do anything I say now. And I bet you if I call her, she'll come. And they say, yeah, right. So they make this bet. He uh, sends a message for her and she comes. And not only does she come at his bidding, but she delivers this enormous long speech about how women should be subservient to their husbands. Mm -hmm. And it's the longest speech in the play by far. And it's a really difficult moment precisely for that point you made earlier that we don't know how these speeches are delivered. I mean, one thing you might think is that if you've got a speech of about 60 or 70 lines, which probably takes about five minutes mm. to deliver, and you're talking about how women should be subservient, mm. there's something a bit contradictory about you know, the, the fact that you're holding the stage <laughs> yeah, so I much and speaking so much yeah. um, in order to say, oh, we should be, you know, more in the background. But it comes down to this stage direction in, in a way at the end, these two stage directions. At the end of this speech, Catherine says, women should be ready to put their hand beneath their husband's foot. And I, that I'm ready to do that. But there's no stage direction which says whether she does or what happens. And then Petruchio says, which is a line which loads of people will know even if they don't know this play. Petruchio's line is, why, there's a wench, come on and kiss me, Kate. And again, there's no stage direction. So does she kiss him? Does he kiss her? They're not the same thing as we know. You know, is this the happy ending where they can now meet as equals? Is this the final sort of act of will over her? It's really, really difficult, really, really difficult to, to pin down. It's absolutely fascinating. It feels to me that's a really generous interpretation. I mean, there's not much evidence that Shakespeare was a raging misogynist. Is there really in his plays particularly or in his life? We know almost nothing really about the sort of emotional quality of Shakespeare's life. We know, you know, boring things about buying property and that kind of thing. I think he writes for his audience. So I think 
comedies tend to have bigger roles for women and women tend to be more active and to yeah, get what they want in yeah, comedy yeah. whereas in tragedy women tend to sit down and be murdered in quite a beautiful way think about desdemona or ophelia drowned in from hamlet so tragedies are not great for women i mean tragedy is not great for anybody but <laughs> but men in tragedies have some big booming speeches in a sense that they've looked life full in the face whereas women tend to be kind of accessories to that yeah i think i'll go on the ten of the shrew we won't know what shakespeare meant we can't we can't know that but we can see that it's an example of how the plays continue to be relevant in different ways we're still interested in the relationship between men and women and what kinds of equalities and what kinds of sort of everyday sexism and all those kinds of things we're still interested in that and we express our interest often through a classic text like Shakespeare so the play keeps changing I guess mm. I'm not saying that my the interpretation that says that Catherine maybe is being sarcastic or ironic at the end I don't think that's true to what Shakespeare wanted but I think the play allows us to think that and that's probably more likely to fly in the 21st century than, than spending you know 50 quid and three hours of your life watching a woman be systematically kind of gaslighted by her, by her husband I mean why would we do that <laughs> that's the thing that, that, that bothers me I love Shakespeare and I will go and watch you know all, all manner of interpretations but I feel like sometimes we're really crowbarring we really try and make the women as feisty as possible or we make them as in control as we possibly can it does feel sometimes we're just kind of crowbarring that where it isn't there and I know what you mean I absolutely agree with that it's another consequence of the fact that Shakespeare is so prominent in our culture particularly in our theatre culture that I think you know, people often feel they're more likely to get an audience, they're more likely to get yeah. funding if they put on a Shakespeare play than if they were to put on a new unknown play which treated the same issues in a more direct yeah. and modern way. You know, sometimes you think people are putting on a Shakespeare which really should have been a different play, but <laughs> the economics of, of, of theatre meant that it had to be Shakespeare. To summarise, if any of our listeners don't like Shakespeare or haven't ever read or watched or listened to any Shakespeare where would you advise them to start have you got a kind of play that you think is his best or a good entry-level Shakespeare I think a really good place to start on Shakespeare is probably if you want a comedy if you want something that's a light-hearted kind of a play in lots of ways have a look at Much Ado About Nothing there's a great Josh Josh Whedon film of that and there's a Kenneth Branagh film of that quite quite different but quite quite likable it's got a friend's sort of vibe I think it's about how relationships between men and between women are strengthened and put under stress by relationships between the sexes so that's where I would start I think in comedy in tragedy I would probably I always feel that the the kind of easiest one to get to get to grips with and the most compelling one is probably Macbeth probably because it's a bit shorter it doesn't have a lot of subplot it's quite a direct sort of thrillerish kind of a play you get really into the mind of this murderer in a way which I think has influenced all kinds of psychological thrillers and those kinds of things ever since so I guess that's where I'd start much to do about the thing and Macbeth Cool, brilliant, thank you. Do you mark Shakespeare Day? Do you wake up and think, oh, happy Shakespeare Day? 
Is it a, a, That's right, bake a cake. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things I feel kind of sad about, actually, many, many things to feel sad about at the moment, aren't there, as well as the blessings we have, is that I won't be in, in a school on, on Shakespeare Day, which is what I usually am. I'm usually invited somewhere and I would have been in one of our local schools talking to them about their GCSE play, uh, which was Macbeth, and their A-level play, which was Othello. So, yeah, I, t- I, I tend to go and do something. Oxford has a weird celebration with sack, which is a very Shakespearean kind of drink, not all that nice, a sort of sweet Madeira-y kind of a drink in an Elizabethan painted room where they think Shakespeare once stayed. I'm not sure that he ever did, but um, I might have been at that too. So it's all kind of, all kind of uh, madness. So what are you going to do this year then? Make a cake? Oh God, yeah, I'll be yeah, Zooming Shakespeare. What will I be doing? Yeah, I'm going to do an event. My book was supposed to come out in the, in the US just this week. Yeah. And I would have been in Washington, D.C. at a bookshop called Politics and Prose. So I'm going to do a live event for them uh, on Shakespeare Day instead of that, uh, okay. instead of having been there in person. So that'll be fun. Okay, well, good luck. And um, thank you very much. Thanks it's a lot. Been lovely talking to you. Thanks very Great, much. Great, Hazel. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspiragen, Mickey at Mixter Noonan and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined via the mysterious power of Zoom by racing driver Jamie Chadwick. Hello, Jamie. Morning. I think it's still morning. I don't know what time of the day it is anymore. No one knows. (laughs) (laughs) No one knows what, what day what time of day, what month even. It's all, it's all a mystery now. I mean, this is a weird experience for everyone, but this must be a particularly weird and I guess quite frustrating experience for you because obviously last year you were the winner of the inaugural W Series, the all-female racing series, which started last year. And, well, you've been having quite an exciting time since then. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been up to? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a bit bizarre for me because I'm so used to my life being constantly sort of travelling, constantly mm. doing things, uh, focusing on what's next. And, yeah, from my perspective up until maybe a month ago, uh, that didn't change. Came off the back of W Series last year, uh, went straight more or less into a race series out in Asia over the winter um, and then I was doing some more work uh, out in New Zealand just before all of this so I'm so used to my life being sort of constantly on the bouts and I guess most racing drivers and athletes are kind of the same in that sense so then to suddenly then find ourselves in this situation is a bit bizarre but yeah I mean I'm in an incredibly lucky position a bit weird because I think I said to someone I don't think I've been at home or in my own bed for this <laughs> longer than three four days at a time so to suddenly have this time at home is actually quite nice. <laughs> Since the W Series, quite a lot has happened for you. So you've been racing in the F3 Asian Series, which you finished in fourth place, which is pretty impressive stuff. Just for listeners who don't know, F1 is kind of like the pinnacle, if you will, like the fastest cars and, and the fastest series, right? And then yeah. F2 
is below that and F3 is below that. So is W series, that's about F3 level as well, right? Yeah, more or less. Where it gets a bit confusing is there's various levels of F3, for example. So there is the International Formula 3 Championship, which supports Formula 1 and is sort of the main F3 championship. But they also have regional championships as well, which one of them is the Asian series that I did uh, over the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also, say, for example, W Series, they use a Formula 3 car. So although it's not called F3, it's effectively that kind of uh, bracket of car or level potentially just a bit under i would say in terms of the international f3 car mm-hmm. so uh, it's kind of if you're looking at my career trajectory so to speak the goal would be uh, to go from w series which was last year and potentially this year to uh, the international f3 championship then to f2 then to f1 you know you've spoken quite openly about your ambition to get into f1 has any female f1 driver ever started yeah, I think they have. I think it's now, so the stat last year was 43 years, so it's probably 44 years now. So you won the W Series last year and you came fourth in the F3 Asian Series. So what you need to get into F1 is qualification points. You need 40 of those and you've picked up 10 from yeah, that fourth place in the Asian Series. You know, you're going back into the W Series, which was due to start at the end of May, but obviously that is well, it's, I would say at this point, likely not to start then, but obviously yeah. I have no confirmation of that and I'm not sure that you do either. So I'm not going to press you on that. But <laughs> I um, wish I did. I don't, yeah, unfortunately. Of course, yeah. So there are more qualification points up for grabs in the next W series, whenever that should take place. So presumably you're pretty hopeful to pick up some more there. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, the way to get to Formula One now, there's a few things obviously required. Um, You obviously have to be successful in each of the categories on the way up. And part of that involves collecting enough super license points, which you can only get by getting the right results in these championships. And W Series have done an amazing thing by getting uh, super license points instated for this year's championship. So, yeah, it's a big part of it for me. Um, I was lucky enough to pick up 10 out in Asia and to do a practice session in F1, so to be part of the race weekend and do an official practice session on the Friday on a Formula One weekend, you need 25. So the aim for this year was to look at trying to get the points from the W Series, which would have given me enough points to do that practice session. So we'll see if that's still something that we can achieve this year. Um, I'm not sort of relying on it, but it'll be nice if that's something we can take off the box for this year. The W Series has made a huge impact in a really, really short space of time. Another thing that's happened to you since then is you've been picked up for a kind of trainee place by Williams. That's come from a point of Claire Williams, who's the principal of Williams, saying initially being quite sceptical about the W Series and sort of saying she doesn't understand why women need to be separated out from men, etc., etc., and she's kind of gone full circle on that. How does that make you feel? You know, what what kind of impact do you think W Series has had? Yeah, I think it goes without saying. The impact W Series had has been huge on the sport. Professionalised women's motorsport overnight, which I think women's sport in general, that doesn't seem to happen at all. So for them to have come in, made the series that is free for us to enter, there's prize money, so effectively it is a professional series. Effectively in the space of a year, Obviously, there's a lot of work that went into the background of that. Well, uh, you know, uh, even I even knew about it. But 
So to do that in such a short space of time has been unbelievable. And I think from their side, it was inevitable that there were going to be critics early on. The way that it was pitched to um, the motorsport world in the sort of early days of it was that it was this segregated series where women would race standalone. And obviously, as a person in the sport and someone that doesn't like change, I was like, no, that's a bad idea. Why has someone come up with that? And I think it took some convincing even on my side. And for example, Claire as well, a lot of women in the industry felt that way. But actually, when for me, I got uh, involved with the series and sort of started to understand and see what they were doing and process behind it all and what the ultimate goal was it was a bit of a no-brainer to get involved and how great it was going to be for me and for the sport and I think from Claire's side what I was so impressed with and why I've got so much respect for Claire is she did feel that it wasn't necessarily the right thing but was happy to be proved wrong so she came to the first race uh, in Hockenheim last year just over a year ago now beginning of May and she came to that race with her husband Mark who actually looks after the young drivers at Williams so looks after me now and they came and watched it firsthand and there and then she was convinced that actually this was a really positive thing and like I said she was happy to be proved wrong in that sense and I then got my role with them and it's been a huge part of you know my development over the past year and yeah my progression going forwards I think. It's quite interesting that you felt that way as well. To be honest I think most of us did really I think motorsport especially it's not um, you know used to much change it's a very say a bit stubborn in its ways but a bit old-fashioned it's an industry and it's amazing sport it's an amazing thing for me to be involved with but at the same time you know it's not changed drastically beyond the technology going forward it's not changed massively over Mm. the past maybe decade and so then for w series to come in and sort of offer up this whole new thing all of us didn't think it was the right thing and i've always been incredibly proud to race against men um, and race against men and women and be competitive in that sense and I've always been proud to do that so I didn't want to you know put myself in a position where I was you know only racing against women because I didn't have to do that but actually uh, you know what W Series have done and achieved in just a short space of time has had a bigger impact on my career than I think any other series could have done. Like I can completely understand why people felt the way they did about it and also from your perspective as a as a competitor feeling like well why should I just race against women like why should I do that but I guess it's it's a way in isn't it it's because the opportunities haven't been there for women yeah exactly it's a way in and I think motorsport's a really tough sport for anyone to break into I think it requires so much financial backing there is no secret that it's not a sport that's accessible for those without you know big backing and however people get that whether they luck into having a good sponsor or manage to get backing from a big team early on or they're privately sponsored however they're done everyone's in the same boat in that sense they all need funding to get to the junior ranks and that basically meant that in a big pool of however many um, racing drivers, there were only probably 2% of women in that pool. And so to progress through and to find a female with financial backing that can get to the top, it wasn't going to happen. So what W Series really needed to do is take out that factor of money basically being an issue, take that factor out, just find the most talented women that they could uh, or that were out there um, at the time and put them in a race series and give, you know, the girls that rose to the top an opportunity. And that's really what they've done. But on top of that, they've also given us so much exposure to then 
find ourselves in a position where now getting backing to go to the next level is a bit easier. You know, I think the sport is desperate for a female to succeed, but they need the right person to succeed. They can't just make it happen or force it to happen. You can't compare the Lionesses to the men's uh, England team. You can't compare W Series to F3. You have to separate things. And whilst women can race against men, what W Series proved was W Series itself, whatever you were watching, you didn't have to be watching women racing, but you were watching great racing on TV and that's what sort of grew in the numbers. That's what got so much attention, I think. I think this is the misconception that people have about sport, be that brands or people who who don't watch it, that men will not be interested in women's sport. And it's not true. For for a lot of men, a football match is a football match. A, you exactly. know, motor racing series is a motor racing series. If they enjoy the sport, they will watch it because it interests them, regardless of who's doing the driving, doing the football, doing the race, you know. Yeah, exactly. People want to watch good sport. They want to watch, you know, something that's interesting to watch on, on TV. And those that uh, enjoy watching motor racing would have enjoyed watching W Series. So... I think that's, um, yeah, one of the exciting things about it. I think there's kind of another misconception around motorsport is that you just sit in a fast car and and that sort of does a lot of the work (laughs) for you. And obviously you have to be extremely physically fit to drive these cars. So what kind of physical preparation are you able to do at home, given that you're obviously not out on a circuit at the moment? Yeah, you're completely right. That is probably the biggest thing I get asked is, oh, motorsport's not physical, so surely, of course, women can race against men. But, I mean, that's not kind of what I mean by when when women can race against men. It's because the physical level is a level that you have to get to. And then if you're above and beyond that, uh, it doesn't necessarily make you faster. So it's not like sprinting where the more powerful you are, the faster you'll be. Mm. It's you've got to get to a level. But that level, even uh, from man or a woman, is a very high level to get to and the cars aren't easy to drive at all they're extremely physical it's tough on the whole body especially when you go to hot countries so yeah definitely the training side of it's something I've had to up massively particularly in the last 12 months or so and something that I've really not been able to let rest at all uh, over this quarantine period so a lot of the stuff I've been doing um, has been sort of in the confines of my flat I've managed to basically turn it into a little home gym I'm quite lucky I zoom or skype my um trainer who mm-hmm. basically gives me something to do it's quite nice because a lot of my training got quite monotonous actually because it was having to adapt around traveling and not always having enough time so it was kind of more or less the same thing all the time whereas now we're actually able to really change it up and do different stuff and adapt to the environment that I'm in and I'm actually quite enjoying that I've got time to do stuff that I didn't have time to do before like yoga and yeah it's um definitely a different environment to train in but um actually i'm quite enjoying it so you are actually going to achieve probably my dream although i am heavily pregnant so to be fair i was never going to uh, emerge from lockdown like some sort of svelte or like hench goddess basically <laughs> but you know that would have been my plan had i not been Potentially. I think I'm going to be a very pale version of an athlete, hopefully, <laughs> afterwards. But between that, and I am eating better, to be fair, because everything I'm making is more or less homemade. But I'm also falling into the trap of starting to bake stuff and struggling mm. to control myself. So there's definitely two sides of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the training, I'm trying to set like little goals and targets, whether that's in like fundraising things. So I'm going to do a half marathon tomorrow. I'm going to do a bike ride uh, on my turbo trainer later in the month. So yeah, there's a few little targets I've set myself that 
give me something to train for, I guess. Obviously, we don't know when W Series is going to be back, but, you know, there's some big announcements about the season before we went into lockdown, such as you'd be racing alongside the US and Mexico Grand Prix this year. So that's a huge, huge platform. Do we have any indication as to whether or not that will still go ahead, given that obviously Formula One's activities have been sort of shut down as well? Yeah, I mean, from our side, they're quite reliant, obviously, on Formula One for the US and Mexico Grand Prix, which we're dependent on. And then also for the other races, uh, we follow the DTM calendar, so which is the German touring cars. Okay. Sadly, that does leave things really up in the air for us drivers and everyone in terms of knowing when um, <laughs> things might return to normality. But I mean, it's the same for everyone in every single walk of life at the moment. And honestly, I, I, I hate saying this, so I'm lucky and it sounds a bit cliche, but Honestly, my situation is could be so much, so much worse. I race cars for a living and really I've been told that I might not be racing a car for a few more weeks or a few more months. And perspective is everything. Anything that, you know, I can do to help support that and whether it's just staying at home and not doing much or raising a bit of money by trying to do a small activity, I think just gives me a bit more perspective on things. So Jamie, where can we find you on Twitter or Instagram or, or any of those things if we want to sort of follow what you're up to and, and these little challenges you've set yourself? <laughs> yeah, you can see me suffering in pain um, <laughs> on yeah Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook. It's all the same, uh, Jamie Chadwick 55. And yeah, you can watch me suffer through anything I might set myself over the next few weeks. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster did we watch this week in a section in no way sponsored by Red Bull or Sporks? This week we watched 2006 Internet Sensation Snakes on a Plane. This is one of these films that had a lot of buzz before it was even released. But it was created by the internet, wasn't it? Like loads of people chipped in. Well, I think, and there I was think only MySpace. I think that's very clear in some of this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just need to need to be really candid and say that I booked to go and see it when it yeah, was first released you... on at midnight. Yeah, <laughs> midnight. Well, I don't think you're necessarily <laughs> fully representative of the sort of people that Snakes on a Plane was created by, but it did less well than expected at the box office, and I surprised people didn't know that because, in the same way that Ghostbusters, the women's version, did better than expected at the box office, I'm thinking that the group of people that hated the idea of women being ghostbusters and love the idea of snakes on a plane are the same demographic and i would also suggest that that's a demographic that doesn't pay to go to the cinema but i like both where do i fall am i the little bit in the venn diagram uh, mickey did you join forums in order to talk about snakes on a plane before it was released i wanted more tips in it hannah and it was the only way to get that <laughs> message across there we go then i'm not you're not in that demographic there's one good tit scene though isn't there Oh my god, Gary nearly fell off the sofa laughing. <laughs> I think that was the point when I went, this is a terrible film, but I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I agree with the first part of that, what you've said, but not so much with the second. I did like it, but I didn't love it. So at the start, I felt a lot of confused emotions because the credits are coming up. There's actually some decent names start appearing there. Bobby Cannavale came up and I thought he's really good. And then you go to that first scene, which I think has some of the worst acting I've ever seen in my life. All of the exposition, all of the expositionary <laughs> dialogue. So, Mister Prosecutor, it was just 
awful. And at that point, I thought, this is a film that you've got to get on board with. So I'm going to try really hard to get on board with it. And I'm not going to question how it is that we got went from the one scene in which he was riding away on his motorbike to the next scene that he's in his house, just what would appear to be, maybe even be moments later. And already the bad guys and Samuel L. Jackson have tracked him down. So obviously this guy's witnessed a murder. They're in Hawaii. He's going to testify in Los Angeles. They get him on a plane and someone releases snakes on it. That's a kind of rough estimate of the plot. I'd say that's fairly comprehensive. Yeah. yeah. Can I chip in with one of my favourite moments of the entire film? Because obviously the premise that to kill one man, you smuggle a lot of snakes onto a plane. You then smuggle pheromones onto the plane and onto lays in order to make the snakes randy slash furious. And then you, you manage to smuggle on a timer that blows the doors off the cages where the snakes are kept, right? And when they talk to Kim, the mobster, and his henchman says... Are you sure you want to go through with this? He says, I've explored I've got that written down here. I literally have this written down here. I would like to see a list of what all the other options were. Absolutely. It's amazing. Try dressing up as an old lady and stabbing him. No, that won't work. It's the only possible solution to this conjure. Nothing else will work. Let's try making a small nuclear bomb that will be guided through his letterbox. They literally make a bomb to put on the plane to release the snakes. Why don't they just put a bomb on the plane? Just a slightly bigger bomb. <laughs> exactly. A couple of other things to add. It's funny because we watched this after Con Air, which obviously everyone will know that I love. And it's very similar, not just because it's on an aeroplane, but the vibe is very similar with Con Air in that it's very knowing. It is what it yeah. is. It knows what it is and it knows what it's doing well and it knows what its audience wants. But where I would say that it falls down is that Con Air is more than that. Conair is very, very funny, whereas this is mostly just arch, and I don't know being arch can sustain a film. And the best example of that is the absolute scandalous waste of Keenan Thompson, who doesn't really do anything during this film. Until the end. Until the last, like, five minutes. But he doesn't get to be funny, and he doesn't get to really do... In fact, he plays a computer game for most of it. I just fucking love Keenan Thompson, and I always want him to do something yeah. i don't know he can't go full what's up with that obviously he can't host black uh, how amazing would that have been <laughs> you mean? have you met keenan thompson sarah me no what about you jen sorry uh no but i do remember the uh 90s kids tv program keenan and kel yeah 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 the only snl people i've met are colin jost and michael che that's all i've so that's all i've got snl wise Sorry. No, no that's still good, it's, though. It's Thanks. more than me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I just, I, honestly, I think Keenan Thompson's, like, so... Because he's always, like, he's been on it for such a long time. He's Everybody forgets to say he's one of the best ones. When you look at lists... He's he the longest-running really... member. Yeah. yeah. I think it knows what kind of film it is, but you saying that... Oh, because yeah. Conair was more than that, and this isn't. But it's like the pitch is the title. Like, it's hilarious that somebody's yeah. pitched it and then they've gone, let's just call it that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel the way somebody thought it was a good title and then wrote a film that fitted it. Uh, that's that that's how right. they sold yeah. it. They, they did, and that's how they sold it to Samuel L. Jackson. And then halfway through filming it, or halfway through the negotiations, they changed the name of the film to something like Southwest Flight 123 and he said I'm not going to do this it needs to be snakes on a plane still and insisted <laughs> that they change it back well that's it you know how the, the pitch for 
alien was Jaws in space. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. But imagine if they still called it Jaws in space. <laughs> that would amazing. No. Okay, not amazing. That would be a very different film. And I know this is really knowing and really arch and really like playing to its like, because again, it was supposed to be, I think, a PG or a 13. And then Oof. a load of the people on those forums that I was not a member of <laughs> were like, no, we want more. We want more tits. We want a snake to bite a man on the dick that he's just referred to as his big boy. And then it went up. Get off my dick, you dick. They did famously reshoot bits. They went in for reshooting yeah. to amp yes. it up a bit. And it's one of them is so obvious, and it's when Keenan Thompson offers to fly that plane, and then in a complete shift of tone, Samuel L. Jackson suddenly says the, the motherfucking line. Yeah, and that yes, has that's, so yeah. clearly been just dropped in. It jars. I made the delightful discovery that for the TV edit of the film, the immortal line, I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking yeah. plane, was changed to, I've had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. Uh-huh. <laughs> Melon father. So I heard, Monkey picker. I heard that it was at Samuel L. Jackson's behest that the line, I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane, was added. Because apparently, motherfucking is his catchphrase. That's his brand. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, brand brand's not the right word you're looking for there. Yeah. And it looks like it has literally been filmed in his Winnebago and just spliced <laughs> back in. It's awful. Yeah. And at the same time, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Just to fill people in, it's slightly more on the plot. Juliana Margulies is in this. She's a flight stewardess. It's it's her last day before she retires, which I can't believe none of us actually have that on our list anywhere. I know. Because that would be great for bingo. Bobby Cannavale is playing uh, an FBI agent who's now riding a desk job. Also on the plane is a famous rapper, 3Gs. It's a funny bit where there's some kids that are travelling alone and the flight stewardess reassures them that they'll be all right because there's a really famous person on the plane and they can go and talk to him. And I thought, I wonder what they do when they haven't got a really famous person on the plane. Like, they, they actually do a little survey and see if they can go, OK, has anybody got anything that would impress children that we can come <laughs> and talk to them about them? Yeah, and he's supposed to be some sort of Howard Hughes character who's really paranoid about some yeah. sort of sanitation, but he's the one who looks normal in this film. I know. I know. He like, gets his antibug out and we're like, smart Exactly. <laughs> what I will say is that it cuts the chase pretty quickly. 20 minutes in, this kind of really starts to kick into snake territory. And despite the fact that the characters are kind... They are obviously ciphers. They're they're kind of well-sketched and well-established enough in that cipher role that you know that's your bastard businessman, they're the honeymooning couple, and that's actually all done quite, I think, quite efficiently for a film that's Mm -hmm. dialogue is just quite a slapdash as it is. The guy who is being taken to testify at this trial is hilarious. He is allegedly, I'm guessing, going to go into the witness protection scheme. But why bother? Because he tells everybody his life story within 20 (laughs) seconds, right? You know how they put him in first class? I just, I was perplexed as to why there was only first class in economy. There was like, put some people in premium economy. Yeah. (laughs) Why is is there no business class? Or is it just first class? Also, when they all have to retreat up to first class and he's the only person in it. There's a bit where they go, everybody get the bags out. And they get all these bags out. Like, who did they belong to? There was nobody up there. <laughs> like, there was bits of That's it that true. made no sense whatsoever. And also, how flimsy was that staircase? Yeah. So, so anyway, oh my God. <laughs> when you first see the snakes, 
you kind of see a lot of snake eye view, which to be honest, I could live without. And then <laughs> I think you'll find it's called snake vision. Uh, and then, and then <laughs> obviously, right. the snakes go on to commit what I can only describe as a number of sexual assaults. <laughs> There's <laughs> they are randy motherfucker monkey monkey fighters. Yeah, and then Taylor Kitsch and his misses are shagging. They get bitten. She gets bitten on the tip. We have a snake that bites a cock. We have a snake that kind of rolls around on a woman's tits to give her a sex oh, dream, which is she's really a lovely odd. time. Yeah, oh, um, there's a lovely little snake who's just found a lay, and he rolls about in the lay just on his own, having a lovely yeah. time, like Boris Johnson in custard. Yeah, I mean the bits of it they're just so stupid. When they build Bag Mountain, oh. Bag Mountain, there's no way that's going to hold snakes. At all. <laughs> absolutely mountain. no way. Whatsoever. I would totally watch a film called Bag Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Can that be the next film we watch, please? Bad Mountain. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier. There's a beautiful moment. Nancy from Peep Show decides to save them all or announces she can save them all by having this weird, mysterious device called a camera phone, which she can... <laughs> and they all go, wow. So, yeah, that's all I've got to say about it. Also, it contains the line where Bobby Cannavale's driving off to get Todd Luizio, who is, and I quote, some kind of hardcore snake specialist. <laughs> yeah, he totally identified that snake was from the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> Just to add that when I was watching this last night, it was, it was way more like disgusting and gory than I remembered it being. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have picked it, to be honest, because that's, as you know, not really my bag. found it quite stressful to watch. And as I was watching it, I started to get Braxton Hicks fake contractions. Practice, basically, to... I believe, is more... Practice yeah. Yeah. to uh, prepare you for the horrors that lie ahead. But they actually started coming quite regularly. And for a moment, I thought I was going to go into labour while watching snakes on a plane. <laughs> then you could a call her. Story. <laughs> then you could call her <laughs> motherfucking. Yeah. Monkey be like mother, motherfucking offered. <laughs> I think it works. That's why Jen won't tell us the name she's chosen because you've just got it right. You've yeah. got it right. Samuel L. Offered. <laughs> that is what I'm calling her. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't really have anything to say apart from I absolutely fucking loved it. Yes. I it was, Team Sarah. It knew exactly what it was. It absolutely delivered. It was ridiculous, but it knew it was. And and that's why. I don't know what your bingo sheets are like, but my, I'm, I'm really struggling to find anything because I felt like it wasn't... I, I feel like it, it knew itself so well that I, none of these things on my list are there. Well, to be fair, it's not technically a disaster film, so... It's yeah. supposed to be a horror film, isn't it? Yeah. But it is a disaster I uh, think in so many ways. <laughs> I thought it was more horror-like than disaster-like. Yeah, yeah it's billed as a horror it. film. You loved chose it, it Jen. I know. Yeah. Well, I I, I, seen it I allowed it because it was my choice, but because Jen had been true. asking for it for so long, I thought it was only fair. Mm. <laughs> I thought um, it was really refreshing too because it feels like we lo- we watch a lot of disaster films that feel like real. So climate change, this could yeah. happen, and obviously there's a lot of provably bad science and too many helicopters. And let's never speak of contagion ever again. But uh, <laughs> oh, this is so joyously ridiculous. Yeah. It, it hasn't put me off going on a plane ever again. I mean, you're not a, you can't, can't go on one ever. for one a while. Thing, we might be able to. One thing that worried me as somebody who gets planes, because Gary was laughing at this fact because he doesn't pl- fly at all, 
And I was going to say he doesn't plane. That's not the verb. Was the fact that when they said, "Why is there no oxygen in these masks?" and the and the air steward said, "Oh, because it runs out after ten minutes," and I was like, "I didn't know that." That means that every time they drop, they expect you to either uh, write yourself land or die within 10 minutes and yeah. that absolutely shit me up <laughs> it's like that thing in fight club where he basically gives that speech about how they all they want to do is to just calm you the fuck down and sedate you at that moment so you're not running around the yeah. plane didn't know this Whereas, i'm so innocent i was like yeah. well that's obviously oxygen until everything's fine again <laughs> but i know what uh, you mean we... mickey it's escapism <laughs> Because it's so rare that that's going to happen. So rare. I love that. Not not unlo- no. not ever. But Oh, no, I believe anything's possible these days. <laughs> Should we count up? Yeah. I think I've got maybe one. I've got five and a question. Wow, have you? I think I got a shit bingo card. Sorry, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> I got the dregs of the bingo cards. No, she couldn't. she's come up with some cracking lines. I think it just it very much depends on the, the film. Yeah, of course. I'm looking forward to being waist deep in water at some point. I'm very much looking forward to that. <laughs> well, I've got an idea for that for next week. I think I've only got three. I have a potential seven. One, two, three. Wow. Four, five, six, seven. But a couple of them are dubious should i go yeah okay old person sacrifice the air hostess threw herself in front of the snake essentially to save the baby thing you can't do meaning you would definitely die in this film well it's the upper body strength thing again when they're all being like they have to hold on so they're not sucked out of the plane there's i mean i would i would fail that also just as as a as a point of that that felt like a ridiculous thing to do is that yes it wasn't the only it couldn't have been the only way to do that because i don't think any of those people would have stayed in that plane i think I, they would I have think all that, been sucked out i think the plane would have crashed probably with a big hole in the side of it i'm not an expert or ripped but... apart or something okay uh number three my eyes are cgi i'm going for the bit where the massive fucking snake eats the horrible businessman all of the general. snakes all of the yeah. snakes uh, apart from when it's hand-to-hand combat and then they're clearly rubber <laughs> which i like um, adopt brace position of screaming yeah. cowardice businessman through the dog at the snake so that takes me to five and then i have two dodgy ones number one is shane star uh given that taylor kitch went on to make john carter ghosts of mars i mean <laughs> wow the last one is but where are they going to the toilet because the toilets are just full of dead people yeah, yeah and they, those that yeah. couple were in there for a while so nobody being able to have any business in there for no. ages poor buggers and that's probably the worst bit of the film for me not being able to use a toilet <laughs> when you're clearly in a situation that'll make you shit yourself even if you've not got uh-huh. ideas inside that, out <laughs> that puts me on seven exciting wow. Wow. Oh, I've got five and a question. Shall I go next? Yeah. So I'm having pre-disaster shag, even though it is very rudely interrupted by snake on tit and mm. then death. Sadly, this isn't me getting one, but it's one of the f- few times that Pet did not survive carnage. No. So, no. But I have to find my son. I have to get to my baby. Nature, you cruel mistress. Mid-disaster punch-up. There's loads. They're all yeah. squabbling all over the place. Oh, maybe I've got seven. Could title be a porn film title? I mean, it basically is a porn film in some parts, so I'm having that. Captain willing to go down with ship, plane, building. Yeah, uh, Champ from Anchorman is, you know, he's there till the end, until he swells up like a balloon. And uh, there is no brilliant plan that can't be fucked up with the addition of people and a really wonky staircase. So I've also got seven. 
Okay, should I go next? I've, I've got, sure. I think, one and a half. It's very poor show from me this week. Oof. Hang on, isn't she 20 to 30 years younger than you? I don't know how old Juliana Margulies is, but I'm pretty sure Samuel Jackson's in his 60s. And the other one is America Fuck Yeah. Is, I feel like whenever Samuel Jackson does a speech... I feel a bit America fuck yeah when he does his mother motherfucking plane uh, snakes on the motherfucking plane but I don't think it really qualifies as America so I think we'll just stick with the one thanks <laughs> rubbish so the businessman is English was it a piss poor English accent oh uh, yeah provably bad science yeah I think the pheromones <laughs> is provably bad science because Apparently, that shit doesn't work. Because if it did work, then in times of war, people would just spray pheromones all over everyone. So apparently it's not true. That's what I've read. Okay. And also, I would say the fucking hole in the side of the plane and all of the snakes. I'm going to say that's provably bad science as well. And a sobbing child. And that's all I've got. It's a tie between you two, between Hannah think, and Mickey. I think Poseidon Hannah, Adventure, I'm going to give this Poseidon Adventure, Hannah. Poseidon Adventure, Poseidon Yeah, because she has an idea. Poseidon Adventure, Poseidon <laughs> Hang on, adventure. I'm just getting a message. Uh, just going <laughs> to decipher that. Standard Issue for All Women.